Hello, my name is Alexandra Heller Nicholas. I'm a film critic from Melbourne, Australia. Joining me today is New York based academic and film critic Josh Nelson. Hi, Josh. Are you ready to have an all nighter? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like totally ready to surf this wave of 80s nostalgia. We, we could just do this for the whole commentary and there will be complaints. There would rightly be complaints. <laughs> Let's talk about serious, sensible things. Let's talk about Tamar Simon Hoffs. Um, this film has the honour of being one of the first films, not the very first film, but one of the first films where a woman was writer, director and producer on a major studio released feature film which is no small deal. Of course, it also stars her daughter, Susanna Hoft, who's most famous for being the singer from The Bangles. We will talk about both of these women in depth. But before we do, I, I guess, Josh, I want to start off by talking about this framing device, this, um, this wonderful, the great Joan Cusack as Gina, making this school project, this home video. The film starts with a shot of a lens. And I love the idea of Gina being almost like a kind of surrogate figure for Tamar herself, you know, and that she's she's the filmmaker. You know, there's a filmmaker figure in the film. Yeah, I see Gina's character really more as a structuring device within the narrative, as opposed to, say, Val or Molly, because she's largely disconnected from the romantic or uh, sexual subplots within the film. And, you know, we get that wonderful line um, coming up shortly where Val says to her, uh, filmmakers sure talk about sex a lot more than they do it. So Gina's role within The All-Nighter, I think, is really that of a documentarian. She's there to archive and to record the final moments of this group, not just as part of her final project, but really for the purposes of posterity, for nostalgia, which I think in large part is what motivated Tamar Simon Hoffs, along with her writing partner, Emil Kessler, to make this film. You know, they were striving to capture the feeling of the college experience that's now coming to a close. You know, this, I think this film is a, is a love letter to friendship and to college days. And I think that's really where the roles of Gina uh, as a character and Tamar Simon Hoffs converge. They're recording these moments so they won't be lost. And as I mentioned, I think that's what in part drew Tamar to this project, that sense of nostalgia for this lost moment of youth. Um, and something that we might touch on later is the fact that Tamara and Susanna were attending college around the same time. You know, there's an obvious bond, this shared sense of the college experience between mother and daughter on this film that runs far deeper than just what we see going on in front of the camera. Absolutely. And I think it, it, that's a really beautiful way to think of this film is that it's a film that was nostalgic for its moment. You know, it was, it was a film that was nostalgic for the time that it was set in, which is a remarkable framing device, I guess, for us watching this film so many years after it was released, because it's so classically 80s, right? It's, it's like a time capsule. And there's already something about the way this film feels like it's looking backwards, that we're only watching the film through the eyes of the camera that I think lends this film a sense of loss. And that's obviously something that a number of teen films explore, you know, the idea of the, the end of high school or the end of college that you know, it represents the final moment before the terrifying realities of adulthood come into play. And certainly on a tonal level, I think the all-nighter feels steeped in this, this moment of sadness or this yearning for an idealised past that's coming to an end. Tamar told Christine McKenna in 1987 at the LA Times that movies are never 100% accurate because they're always one step away from reality. 
But I think that this is an accurate depiction of young people and not just kids in Southern California in 1987. I went to Yale and the experiences depicted in the film are very much like experiences I had at school. In fact, the three female leads are loosely based on myself and two roommates. But Tamaz also talked about this film very much as being a love letter to, uh, to beach party movies. And, and Rob McGuinness and Timothy Sherry write, they draw a direct parallel from the earlier rock movies of the 50s, like rock, Mr. Rock and Roll, Shake, Rattle and Roll, Go Johnny Go and Rock Around the Clock, films like that to the beach movies of the 60s, things like Gidget, noting that the latter effectively, quote, picked up where the latter left off with an emphasis on music and the opportunity for more sexual stimulation. They quote director William Asher, who directed a whole ton of these classic era beach party movies like Beach Party, Muscle Beach Party, Bikini Beach, Beach Blanket Bingo, and How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, as saying that these films would be box office gold because they were quite simply, quote, about clean cut kids who just wanted to have fun, and that's what the all-nighter is. Absolutely. It's fun, but it's, as I mentioned, it's fun times coming to an end. You know, the fact that the events within the film take place in those final 24 hours before graduation, before they're all preparing to go their own ways. I think this film is in some ways less about college days and fun than it is about closure and loss. And if you think about other high school or college films where the graduation ceremony is often the culmination of the narrative, where the events have been spread out over an entire year or an entire semester. You know, here the focus is entirely on the very end of that experience. And I think that contributes to that sense of finality, that sense of loss, which I don't think many critics gleaned at the time. And this is something that uh, Tamar Hoffs talks about in an interview with Christine McKenna of the LA Times. And she, she says, quote, there are certain stories you can tell over and over and it's possible to have enormous amounts of content buried within a film like this. Being in school delays having to deal with certain aspects of life, and these kids are still a bit innocent. So on one level, the film is about the end of innocence. I love that idea. It reminds me, I'm, I'm liberally borrowing from a different culture here, but the Japanese concept of mono no aware, which is a really key concept in Japanese aesthetics, um, which is precise, you know, the idea of the falling cherry blossom being the most beautiful thing imaginable because it's it's capturing the the moment of something being lost that there's a real beauty in in that moment and um i suspect that that you know the, the concept of mono no aware is not really it wasn't conceived with a film like the all-nighter in mind um but i do i think you're precisely right i do think and i think watching it as i said you know all these years later you know especially through this um this sort of school project home video footage there is a really inbuilt sadness and nostalgia and that, yeah, this sense of a, that there's beauty in the moment lost. You know, we're never getting this time back. And, and what is so interesting about this film, I think, narratively, is that they're, they're aware of that, that that's part of the story. They're sad about it while it's happening. I think on that sense, it's a really interesting film because it fits less into the college teen movie sex quest genre or subgenre, as it does something like a, a film that I know that we both really love, um, Modern Girls, with Daphne Zuniga, Cynthia Gibb, and Virginia Madsen, which is about three more adult women. Um, you know, they're, they're out, they're, they're out in the world, they're working, they've left college behind them, they've left school behind them. It's actually structurally closer to that, which I find really interesting because it, it throws the whole question of the coming of age trope really into. It doesn't subvert it, but it, it challenges it or questions it or undermines it in a really interesting way in that it acknowledges that these are, are adult women 
Yeah, there's a number of interesting parallels between The All-Nighter and Modern Girls, which was released a year earlier in 1986. Now, both films focus on a group of three female friends who happen to be roommates. Um, the events within the film take place over the course of one night, and they're all still searching for some kind of direction or meaning or satisfaction in life, either romantic or in their, in their jobs. And in some ways, it, it feels as if modern girls could very easily have been the sequel for the women that we see in this film, if it had taken place a year after their college graduation. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of love quest thing that lies at the heart of modern girls as well, which this film, just, as, as you've noticed, Gina, um, John Cusack's character, doesn't have that, which I think is really interesting for reasons that we've already touched on and I'm sure we'll continue to. But at the heart of all three films too is a rock star figure, um, you know, a kind of a, an infatuation with a rock star figure. So I, I do think that they're really interesting films to think through in relationship to each other. They're both um, MTV aesthetics and just the world of MTV and especially because of Susanna Hoffs and her relationship to the Bangles. That's obviously something else I think that we'll touch on. But I think that, um, you know, Modern Girls is, it explicitly taps into MTV thinking, you know, the MTV lifestyle, the MTV aesthetics. I don't think you can overestimate the importance of MTV as a cultural institution at this time. I mean, it comes along at the almost the identical time when the teen movie genre is exploding within American cinema. You know, obviously there were hugely important films that predate MTV, films like Animal House in the late 70s. But, you know, Modern Girls is a really perfect example of the role or the influence of MTV. It pretty much opens with Cynthia Gibbs' character watching MTV, then spotting her, her rock idol Bruno X, played by Clayton Rona. And then the rest of the film is this series of misadventures in which the two characters and their sidekicks are sort of chasing each other around LA over the course of one night you know and, and not surprisingly music is hugely important to these films and again it's not surprising that in the all-nighter we have a pop star in Susanna Hoffs arguably at the height of her fame with the Bengals cast in a film where so much emphasis is placed upon the soundtrack you know the wall-to-wall -wall, uh, rock and pop songs within the all-nighter and the teen genre more broadly dominate over traditional musical score within these films. And that's a consistent trope across the teen movie genre more generally. Oh, absolutely. And I think even though, you know, Susanna Hoffs was very clear that she doesn't sing in this film. You know, she, she wanted it to be a different kind of, um, you know, her presence alone, uh, just in terms of her star persona, was going to make it a, a pop star movie. It was going to link it to that tradition. But in many interviews, she flags the fact that, I think that she does backing vocals on one of the songs on the soundtrack, but I think that that's it. You know, we see her dance in the film, but we do many times, um, but we don't see her sing. And of course, that's why she's famous. But it's, you know, I mean, it, I think it's impossible to watch this film and not link it with things like Desperately Seeking Susan from 1985, the Susan Settlement film, and even Cindy Lauper's Vibes from 1988 with uh, Jeff Goldblum and Peter Falk. There's obviously others, and there's a long, you know, she's not the first, obviously, you know, we have older performers like Cher and Dolly Parton, um, who obviously made that crossover from music to, to acting very successfully. But, I mean, we might be best starting off talking about Tamara and Susanna, um, both individually and then particularly moving into this collaboration. It might be a useful way to frame this. So I'm particularly interested in, in this idea of Susanna Hoss' star persona uh, and, and her relationship to the Bangles, which obviously is how most of us know her and knew her when this film was released, as much as I am 
in terms uh, interested in her relationship to Tamar, to her mother. Uh, there's a great book by John Izod where he talks about rock star movies. He talks about the ph phenomena of pop star movies. And there's a great quote here where he says, rock stars and pop stars have a comparable standing as popular icons to their equivalents in film and television. Insofar as the production of star personalities is concerned, this occurs because the publicity machines and marketing apparatus behind all the leisure industries construct and promote their stars to audiences through broadly similar mechanisms. The industry prefers crossovers with stars working in more than one medium as a means of broadening the market. So pop stars produce not only CDs, audio tapes and vinyls, but also videotapes for TV broadcasts. Websites are set up in their names. Obviously, that would have been post all-nighter. Corporate concerns market tie-ins with their image. And this is to say nothing of their appearance in movies. So that from a pop star perspective, this is um, part of the industry. There's, there's thousands of films that we can mention, right? Um, Britney Spears and Crossroads. I mean, you know, there's Endler, Eminem in 8 Mile, you know, it's, and it's a still a contemporary thing. But I think it's really interesting here because in a way that can almost be seen as, you know, it's purely a cynical marketing thing. And what we have here, I think, with this mother-daughter relationship is something very, very different. Um, the, you know, this is really an act of love and, and togetherness and collaboration between a mother and daughter. And they both spoke very explicitly over the years about that being the case. I want to come back to this aspect of the mother-daughter collaboration that you've just mentioned, because I think it's hugely important. In particular, there's an interview that they did with um, Marsha Frolker Coben of the Chicago Tribune. But I want to circle back briefly just to, to MTV and this issue of music and the interrelationship between cinema and music at the time. Thomas Doherty has written a really fascinating book entitled Teenagers and teen picks. And in that text, he describes the influence of MTV on popular culture. And I quote, in 1981, the advent of MTV consummated the on-again, off-again flirtation of rock music and television, supplying core programming composed of record company commercials, doubling as motion picture trailers for films that incorporated video techniques and rock music soundtracks. With the blockbuster success of the MTV-marketed Flashdance in 1983, the distinctions between music, music video, television and motion picture made up a Marshall McLuhan house of mirrors, or to mix metaphors, a perpetual motion exploitation machine, pulsating steadily and spiralling wildly through the space of American culture. Oh, I really love that quote. And I think a lot of the literature on uh, MTV and its relationship to not just to cinema and pop culture in general, but specifically to the teen movies, really links into that. There's a great book by Rob McGuinness and Timothy Sherry where they discuss uh, the book's called Teen Movies, American Youth on Screen. And they also talk about MTV during this era as being really crucial in creating a broader commercial ecosystem, I guess, where pop stars appearing in movies, again, while not unique to this period, it just really flourished. Um, I mean, MTV played a similar role in promoting rock stars through music videos as something we'll talk a lot more about later because uh, Tamar has flagged these as such a big influence on her as the beach movies of the 60s and even the rock films of the 50s and that the inclusion of film soundtrack music videos and promotion of pop star films it brought it all together in a really 80s way. So while, uh, you know, the, the rock movies and the, the beach films were really specific to those decades, these kinds of pop star teen movies were very specific to the 80s and really intrinsically tied in, I think, to MTV 
uh, not just aesthetically, but culturally and in economic terms. You know, there's a real marketing promotional thing going on here. They have this great quote where they say MTV's fast-paced and dynamic visual style would also influence directors to use shorter shots and more unusual effects in their films, a change in style that, unlike the psychedelic wave of the late 1960s, remains evident to this day. And I don't think that that can be understated. I think that the impact of MTV aesthetics on filmmaking, I think that we still feel that today um, in, in both feature films, but also in music videos. I think, you know, when people talk about cinematic music videos, I think that this was really a period, and especially in the teen movie, where these aesthetics, these stylistic factors really start to merge. So it's not just about star images and pop star images, um, which is clearly one of the things we're really interested in here in terms of Susanna Hoffs, but something, the legacy is much deeper. And I think you see that legacy in the way that the music video has influenced the, the, the film narrative on a formal level. Think about the editing, the structure of the narrative. We've just had, uh, just prior to this, we've had a, a surfing sequence where the narrative effectively halts in favour of this protracted spectacle of CJ and Killer taking it to the waves, accompanied by Mike and the Mechanics track Take the Reins. So again, we have the surfing sequence, we have spectacle, and we have that sort of quick-paced editing, this emphasis on, on style which resembles the music video form. And again, this is repeated throughout the film and teen movie genres more broadly. Later on, we get another surfing sequence where again, the narrative halts and we have the emphasis on uh, the music with the wonderful track by Timbuk3, the future's so bright, I gotta wear shades. And again, if you were in any doubt about the relationship between music, music videos and cinema, Timbuk3 would actually go on to appear in the 1988 movie DOA, starring Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan, where they performed a number of songs. And again, that's another classic trope of the teen movie genre, is having bands uh, appear within the films themselves. Just while we're talking music within this film, it would be remiss of me not to give a friendly shout out to Aussie punk rockers The Hard-Ons and their song The Girl in a Sweater, which plays in that later sequence when Gina and Val are speeding on their scooter to the hotel to rescue Molly. Uh, it would also be doubly remiss of me if I didn't give at least a brief shout out to legendary composer Charles Bernstein, especially for those of us with a taste for 80s horror, as I know we both do. And he worked on films such as The Entity, Cujo, Nightmare on Elm Street, Deadly Friend, and April Fool's Day, among many, many others. And he provides the score for The All-Nighter. Look, by this point of the movie, we've met our, our central cast, really. We've met Molly, we've met uh, Dee Dee Pfeiffer here as Val, we've met John Cusack as Gina, James Anthony Shanta as Killer, John Cholesky as CJ. We, we'll meet a few other people along the way, but we have our really core cast here. But I think talking about MTV and, and this relationship between the all-nighter and the pop star teen film legacy of the 80s, it's probably worth talking about Susanna Hoffs a little bit more. Now, this, this film, it just can't be underplayed at what an important time this film came out in relationship to the Bengals and their, their story. I believe this film came out on the 1st of May 1987. In 1986, the Bengals released their album Different Light. Now that had songs on it like Manic Monday, which was really, I mean, they'd been around before then, but that was really what made them international superstars. Written by Prince, the rumour is supposedly trying to woo Susanna Hoffs. I mean, it's a banger of a song. That album also, of course, had Walk Like an Egyptian. So big, big stars, massive pop stars on MTV all the time. Susanna Hoffs, 
you know, instantly recognisable pop star on the back of different light. The year after this film came out, uh, we have a more mature Bangles. We have the Everything album in 1988, which had In Your Room, and of course, probably their most famous song today, I think, which is Eternal Flame, which is quite a different song, I think, in terms of the more kind of jaunty pop that they had up until that point been known for. 1987, I mean, when this film came out, they had three singles released in this year. So they were on MTV, not necessarily, you know, with not, not her singing songs from the movie, but she was on MTV with um, Walking Down Your Street, following, and for my money, the best song they ever recorded, cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Hazy Shade of Winter, which ironically was from the soundtrack of the Lesson Zero soundtrack. And if you check out the film clip for Hazy Shade of Winter, which you should because it's one of the best covers ever, ever recorded, um, it's that classic 80s music video promoting a film in that it's the band playing in one of the locations of the film, but it's intercut with shots from the film. That has to be one of the, the all-time great covers, doesn't it? That is a remarkable thing. But then again, it's another example of the relationship between film culture, music culture, which I, I guess perhaps through um, a number of critics at the time because you have this um, pop star as part of this band arguably at the height of their fame, and yet in her first role she's disassociated from her musical career. She shows an interest in music, like the scenes that we get with the character of Mickey Leroy. She's obviously kind of musically savvy, but she's not a musician. This is not a platform for her, her music. And she talks about this. There's an interview she did with the LA Times where she says, the movie isn't a musical and it would have confused the audience if I'd sung in the film, particularly since that's not what the character I, I portray is about. I play a vulnerable, cautious, self-protective girl. Adjectives that describe me pretty well, by the way. I identified with this character quite a bit. And I think you get this contrast there between the usage of Susanna Hoffs within this film and, say, the use of pop stars or music performers in more recent crossover projects such as Eminem in 8 Mile, Britney Spears in Crossroads, or Lady Gaga within A Star Is Born. You know, films that rely really heavily on the performer's off-screen persona, where that stage identity is incorporated within within the narrative of the film, in a way that I think the all-nighter is deliberately trying to avoid. Oh, absolutely. I think that when we think of women pop stars of the 80s who turn to movies, we think of more flamboyant figures like Madonna or Cyndi Lauper. A really interesting one, I think, is Tina Turner in Beyond Thunderdome, uh, Whitney Houston in The Bodyguard in 1992, so a little bit later. But in each of these cases, we can see how the pop star in question's broader star persona feeds and their image feeds into the roles that they play. And she's really interesting here, like you say, because I think in contrast, you know, she has more of a rock-edged pop star image. You know, the, the, the bangles during this period, there was something a little bit retro and pop and fun about them. But this film is not feeding off her star persona in that way. Uh, if you didn't know the relationship between the filmmaker and the actor, and you'd never seen the Bangles before, I don't think that you would feel that aura, um, you know, that star aura that you get from somebody like Madonna in, in Desperately Seeking Susan. I mean, she radiates off the screen, regardless of what you think of her performance. The film fetishizes her as, a, as, a, as something different, as something special. And here, Susanna Hobbs isn't rendered something special. It's actually quite the opposite in that she's rendered just like an everyday person, which I think is super interesting. And there's a question of authenticity there. And not that I'm saying that this is a um, this is hard-hitting realism or naturalism that, that Tamara and Susanna were aiming for, but this role, I think, really lacks the gloss and polish and that heavily 
branded fashion aesthetic that a lot of other women working in film, uh, pop stars making that crossover, were really working on. And that's, you know, that's a generalisation. I'm sure that there's exceptions. But I do think that in the popular consciousness, um, there's something really down to earth about Susanna Hoffs's character in this film in relation to her status as a very, very famous pop star during this period. Yeah, she uses the word vulnerable in that interview. And I think that's a really perfect way to describe her character. Now, there's a sense of innocence that defines Molly. There's a number of moments within this film where I catch myself thinking, you know, are these really college-age characters? This often feels more like a high school film. And I think in large part, that's to do with her character and the level of innocence and vulnerability that her character displays. This idea of the one true love that she's uh, searching for, or in that scene with the college counsellor, those moments feel like something that's been ripped from the pages of a high school teen narrative, more so than a college character you know, on the verge of, of adulthood. Again, in the sequence just before we see her strip down to her underwear and dance in front of the mirror, a scene I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about in more detail shortly. She, she picks up a Raggedy Ann doll, you know, and Susanna Hoffs was 27 or 28 when she made this film. She's not exactly a kid anymore. So I think the film is deliberately trying to play off her character within this film against her Bangles pop star persona. And I think that we see this very, very clearly in this sequence with, uh, with Mickey, with Michael Onkin's character, we can just call him Sheriff Truman. Is it just easier if we call him? This is, of course, pre-Twin Peaks, but we're all looking at this and we're thinking it's Sheriff Truman. And why wouldn't why wouldn't the lead singer of the Bangles lose her mind over Sheriff Truman? But we can perhaps leave that discussion for, for, for not recording time. This is really, I, I think this is such an interesting sequence in how it's blocked, in how it's filmed. You know, it might not be Citizen Kane, but I do think that there's a real, really interesting dynamic in this scene because... We have Susanna Hoffs, who we recognise as a pop star, but who doesn't play a pop star, freaking out about meeting her favourite pop star. And Michael Onkin's character is very different, I think, in the, in the way that he would have been culturally conceived at this moment. So he was quite, you know, we, we know him as Sheriff Truman now, but at this point in his career, he was doing really interesting stuff. So he started in a really important Arthur Hillier film from 1982 um, with Kate Jackson and Harry Hamlin uh, about a married man who comes to grips with his homosexuality. Really cutting-edge stuff for 1982. And he was in a number of really quite high-profile films before he became synonymous with Twin Peaks. He was in Slapshot with Paul Newman in 77. That is, yeah, that is such a great... It's one of the all-time great sports films, Slapshot. It's brilliant. I mean, he was yeah. in a Claude Chabrol film. He was in an adap uh, Chabrol's adaptation of Simone de Beauvoir's The Blood of Others in 84. I think leading up to this, probably for people, you know, for people hire, you know, watching it on cable or hiring it on video, probably the thing that made him the most famous, I think, was a really quite, quite, quite uh, famous TV movie called Kids Don't Tell in 1985 where he plays a documentary filmmaker making a movie about child sexual abuse. So it's it's a really interesting scene. I, I love this scene because it's lots of fun, but I think there's a lot of dynamics regarding uh, Hoff's and Aunt King's broader star personas at this moment um, that really complicate it and make it really interesting. And the whole time we have Gina, you know, we have um, Joan Cusack documenting it. We have this uh, internal observer watching from inside the film. Yeah, that moment with Gina filming Molly and Mickey Leroy feels very metatextual because there's that moment where Killer and CJ get up to leave and we don't see Gina 
almost leading us to assume that she's exited the scene along with a pair of them. And then suddenly we get that almost jarring low angle cut of Gina setting up the lights and the camera to film the dance between the starry eyed Molly and this rock star in Leroy. I think it's very much a reminder to the audience of the behind the camera presence, which of course is Susanna Hoff's mum. And the film seems to acknowledge this repeatedly throughout the, the film. You know, there's that line of dialogue we get early on within the, within the narrative where Molly is cleaning up and says, my mum's coming over and she's totally neurotic about everything. And yet we never actually see Molly's mum throughout the, the course of the film. So the character of Gina really serves as a reminder to the audience of Tamar Simon Hoff's presence through the presence of Gina's camera and the film project that's structuring the narrative. And in a way, it's a reminder about the importance of this project for these two women, this connection between mother and daughter that's constantly being reinforced through the character of Gina. Look, I think we should probably take this opportunity to talk a little bit more in depth about Tamar Hoffs because she's a, a remarkable figure. Her career is quite extraordinary. And, you know, we keep coming back to this question that, that, that I'm sure we'll talk about more too, that, that we have a, a mother and daughter uh, director slash acting collaboration here. Now, of course, it's not the first time that happened. Most immediately, I think of uh, Elaine May's film, The Heartbreak Kid, that she directed and released in 1972 which actually uh, her daughter, uh, Jeannie Berlin, plays an amazing role in. Uh, and Berlin was actually nominated for a Best Supporting Actor for that role, and she should have won it. Just, just want to put that out there. We will come back to Elaine May later when we talk perhaps about women's filmmaking and comedy in the late 80s. But Hoff's, um, you know, it's funny. I think when we talk about filmmakers, we defer to surnames. Uh, and in this film, it's not going to work. So I'm going to call her Tamar. So I, I don't mean to be disrespectful or to imply intimacy we, I don't know the director. We don't hang out. We don't. We don't go bowling. But I think it's easier if we just talk about Tamar and Susanna here. So Tamar was born in Pennsylvania and grew up in Chicago. She would go on to study at the University of Chicago, where she got her BA, before she went to Yale and did postgrad in painting at their School of Fine Art with um, Harry Callahan, the famous photographer, not the Clint Eastwood character, because that that would be very weird. She's a really impressive academic. I mean, we talk about her as a filmmaker and an artist, but she was also awarded the, uh, a Doctor of Humane Letters from the International University College at Aix-en-Provence in the field of international education and European studies. But of course, it's Yale where she met and married Joshua Hoffs, with whom she had three kids, and of course, Susanna was one of them. There's a really great interview in the Chicago Tribune where she talks about, Tamar talks about motherhood and these, these generational shifts. And it's a really interesting quote, I think, in terms of the, the idea of nostalgia and the moment and what this film is tapping into. She says, I was a 60s woman. My young adult life was happening then. Like many women then, I made the decision to do what was the conventional thing, get married and have kids. And like other people, I made that a very big priority in my life. The majority of people that I grew up with felt a greater need to accomplish that part of our lives first, to be a mum first. But we still wanted to do a lot of other things too. This motherhood decision in no way negated our desire to have careers, say something in the world, play a role, influence people in the arts, be a business leader. The only question was, when were we going to do it? As a mother of young kids, I was out of the job field. That was just what we did then. I was sort of on a self and situationally imposed leave of absence. But the moment she was old enough, I was taking Susanna along with me everywhere. Maybe that's how we got so comfortable with each other. Early on, we learned how to move to each other's rhythms. 
And as you say, uh, you know, she comments here on the fact that they both went to college at the same time. Um, they both really started their careers at the same time because Tamar, being a woman marked by the zeitgeist of her generation, that's how it was done. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important interview, I think. And maybe this is not the right time to get on onto it, but I want to flag it as something to come back to. And that's the critical response to this film, which normally I would resist giving air to such negativity, but the way in which so much of the press for this film, the critical response to this film on its release, focused negatively on the mother-daughter aspect to the film, I think is something that's really important. And something that I think I get the sense from later interviews with both Susanna and Tamar was deeply, deeply hurtful. And as Tamar points out in this interview with um, Marsha Falker Coburn from the Chicago Tribune, when she's asked about mother-daughter filmmaking um, duos, she says, she says, I think that's strange and sort of sad. Why not? Father and son partnerships are an accepted, even revered concept. Why should mothers and daughters working together be considered such a bizarre idea? My mother was an artist, so there's always been a collaborative effort between the generations, art and music, ballet and filmmaking. The idea of togetherness is just so natural for us that it's hard to imagine that it doesn't normally work out that way with other people. You know, a good example of the way in which the response to this film was repeatedly framed back in this context of mother-daughter issues. There's a an interview with Bryant Gumbel from NBC that they did prior to the film's release in, in uh, 1987. And the questions he asks the pair of them who are seated on the couch opposite are basically all about the, the pitfalls of working with either mother or daughter. He asks them first about how did Susanna get the role with the insinuation that, that she's only got it because of nepotism and that her mother's the director. Then he asks Susanna about the, the nude scene. Then he asks them, how did you deal with mother-daughter arguments while on set? Then says, how can Tamar be um, not biased in regards to the quality of her daughter's performance? And then basically infers that you can't do music and acting, you'll have to pick one lane. And that, then the interview's pretty much over and they've not discussed the film at all. And I think there is something about the fact that this film um, was directed, co-written, um, produced, as you mentioned, by a woman and, and features the daughter of the director in the lead role that somehow really hit a, hit a, hit a raw misogynist nerve in the, in the general critical response to the film, not just with male critics, obviously, um, certainly other critics as well. I, I feel like I've maybe taken us off on a tangent that I didn't want to go to just yet, but yeah... No, no, I think I think it's a really good idea to talk about this um, at this moment because I think that the time that this film was released, we can't undermine it more. I've already mentioned Elaine May, so I might ex- expand now on why I flagged her as being so significant. So Ishtar, the notorious Ishtar, the famous bomb Ishtar, which is actually an amazing film. I'm biased. I co-edited in 2019 uh, what I believe is still the only book on Elaine May's career. As a filmmaker, I genuinely, unironically think Ishtar is a great film. Ishtar came out on the 15th of May. All Nighter came out on the 1st of May. And culturally, Ishtar was destined to fail. And um, 
you know, in retrospect, there's been research done that the call was coming from inside the house, that there was a real need for this film not to go well. The rhetoric surrounding May and Ishtar sounds like I'm going a little on a tangent here, but the closeness of the release dates of this film and the gender of the director of The All-Nighter I do think are really relevant, even though it wasn't picked up at the time and nobody's bothered retrospectively to comment on it because All-Nighter is a teen film, it's considered slight. But the constant drumbeat that Ishtar received in the press, and it became part of pop culture, you know, there's a Gary Larson comic about it. You know, it was in The Simpsons. You know, the Ishtar being this terrible film is like a punchline. The attitude in the press is precisely the misogyny that you've described here. It's like women, you know, this was a big, big budget studio film. And it was this constant suggestion that women can't deal with money. Women can't run big projects. They can't be trusted to helm major studio films. Um, and I do think that the all-nighter perhaps rhetorically got caught up indirectly in a lot of the really ugly negativity that was surrounding Ishtar at the time. And it's also worth thinking, keeping in mind, that this was an era where, you know, it was actually a boom for women in comedy uh, in terms of filmmaking. We have Nora Ephron, we have Penelope Spheris, Penny Marshall, Amy Heckling, Tamara Davis, Susan Settlement, we've already mentioned, Betty Thomas. I do think that we come down here to that old chestnut, which is, you know, goes back very far historically, that, you know, that women aren't funny cliche i do think that we have that that bigotry slinking in a little bit when women make comedy films which of course is garbage but there's been you know there's been a lot of really interesting critical work on the bias against women who work in comedy whether it's in filmmaking whether it's on stage stand up i mean there's a great book by Marwina banks and amanda swift they tackle this in their 1987 book the jokes on us women in comedy from music hall to the present day they go right back to the music hall and they notice that even then there's no real real surviving documentation about women in comedy um that it's this sort of disposable thing that's this forgettable thing it doesn't it's not really important and that's had an archival legacy in in how the history of comedy has really played out which makes it really easy to normalize assumptions that women who work in comedy again either you know whether they're in front of the camera behind the camera that they're somehow interlopers. They're women who don't know their place. And obviously this has a huge amount of crossover with women's filmmaking in general. And while it might be a stretch on a superficial level to at least push for the all-nighter as a particularly political film, I do think that once we get into the cultural history of women's sexuality during the late 80s, uh, in the context of AIDS in particular, which we will talk about very soon, I'm sure, in relation to a very famous Leonard Moulton review, I'm also reminded here of Regina Baraka's 1988 edited collection, Last Laughs Perspective on Women's and Comedy. And she makes a really important point here. She says that feminist criticism has often generally avoided the discussion of comedy, perhaps in order to be accepted by conservative critics who found feminist theory comic in and of itself. This flies in the face of the reality for Baraka that women writers have traditionally used comedy to subvert existing conventional structures. So like I said, I'm not banging the drum for the all-nighter as a particularly profoundly political film uh, in an explicit sense, but I think that we can, you know, there's stuff going on here that we can talk about politically that we're really trained not to, and that, that comes not just from, from men, but also from feminist criticism itself. Yeah, you're right. I don't think the all-nighter is necessarily attempting to be explicitly political in the way we might understand, say, traditional second-wave feminist politics. But I do think if the film is attempting to do something different or at least offer an alternative. And for Tamar, I think that has a lot to do with this idea of mother-daughter filmmaking. And this is something that she speaks to in that 
Chicago Tribune piece I mentioned earlier, and she remarks, quote, I think mother-daughter teams are the wave of the future, although for us the possibility of this kind of project happening again in the near future is not very good. If the timing works out, we'd both love to do it. We've got other stories to tell. I've always been bothered that lots of movies for Susanna's age group, or for kids slightly younger, distort or exploit certain fears and anxieties, so that the only options left are violence or despair. I want to provide an alternative to that kind of filmmaking. I've learned a lot about kids from Susanna. She's learned a lot from me too. I'm sure this is something we'll talk to in more depth shortly in relation to Tamar's earlier filmmaking, in particular her short film The Haircut from 1982. But I think a large part of her approach to cinema comes from this idea of wholesomeness. And I know that sounds really daggy in a way, but it's really what this film is about. Although you could be forgiven for thinking otherwise, given the critical response to the film. Okay, we have the famous respect scene here. This You were talking about reviews and how a lot of male reviewers, especially Josh, were really uncomfortable with this scene. I mean, some of the stuff written about this scene is um, really something special. <laughs> I want to come back to some of the reviews later, particularly like the Leonard Moulton and some of the issues that raises. But just on the way, say, a critic like Pat Graham, writing for the Chicago Reader, somehow manages to combine um, some pretty nasty comments about the mother-daughter aspect to this film, but also the sexualization. And he, he writes, um, following a, a long-winded rant about the mother-daughter stuff, he writes, Given the Sadian implications of this vanity misfire, the only real issue is a pornographic one. How far will mum push the parental violation? Is she a mum first, or will she throw family embarrassment to the wind? The moment of truth arrives, the moral equivalent of the cum shot, and it looks like she muffs it. In brackets, some anonymous backside backing off so you really can't tell, but at least we're given an aquafresh reprieve. The way in which critics really went after this film gets back to what I was saying before. There's, there's something that they didn't just write this off as a, a, a low-budget beach teen sex comedy. You mentioned the, the big budget of Ishtar and how that undoubtedly fit into the, the nastiness that Elaine May encountered. This film was had a $1 million budget in 1987, a 32-day production shoot. It had a first-time feature director, um, first-time feature writer and co-writer, and a first-time feature lead performer. And they really went after this. Um, certainly the aspect of sexuality and the, and the mother-daughter stuff. I mean, you, you get that quite explicitly, I think, in that quote from Pat Graham. And even other writers as well. There's a, um, a piece by Kathy Mayo that she wrote in Sojourn. I'm going to come back to this review in a different context a little bit later, but she writes in, in her review, once in a while it really is fair to blame a mother for the way her child acts. The all-nighter is proof, and the way Susanna acts should fill Tamar's heart with guilt and remorse for the rest of her days. In the all-nighter, Hoffs shows no quality of any kind. She's awkward and dull, and a lot of the blame must go to her mother as director, co-screenwriter, and producer. That's something else. I mean, that's... um. That almost feels personal. That feels like a personal attack. Like it, it, it's, there's an escalation, I think, here in the tone and the anger. And what I think is really interesting, and, and Christine McKenna from the LA Times in 1987, I think is to be credited for this, because she at least asked Susanna what she thought about it. You know, that's the voice that's missing here. Um, and she she asks her both about the poster. There's a very uh, this, the poster for this is really drummed into my memory. The you know the which I remember from the VHS artwork, which is Susanna Hoffs in a 
in a bikini. And she asks her about both poster and the sequence we've just seen, the respect sequence. And Susanna said, I feel pretty weird about it, though there's a side of me that thinks it's kind of funny. I do in the, a scene in the film wearing nothing but my underwear, and I must admit that it was hard to do. If I had an incredible song blasting in the background, I'd be able to do it. So I brought in a copy of Aretha's Respect, and that did the trick. And I love the that she articulates her own agency in that scene. You know, that she doesn't talk about her mother in that scene. She's like, I felt weird doing it, and then I paid, played this amazing song about women and empowerment, and I felt that I could do it. And um, I think that that's a really important quote. Because that's Susanna talking about her own, her own sexual image and her own ability and her own capacity to provide the mechanics that made her feel comfortable doing that. Which, in a sense, makes the critical response to this film all the more galling. You know, the Hollywood Reporter claimed that the all-nighter bordered on child abuse, and Tamar frequently had to defend the film against these kinds of claims. I think she she said in an interview with People magazine in June of '87, "We didn't do anything bad. You know, we love each other. The critics can't ruin our relationship." But there was a real sense of venom in the critical response to this film that felt personal. And for a mother and a filmmaker to have to defend those kinds of scenes that we just saw, um, which feel incredibly tame, not just in a contemporary context, but also in the context of the 80s college films which preceded that, featuring her 28-year-old daughter. You know, it's not as if Susanna Hoffs is a child when they're making this film. She's not a child without any sense of agency. You know, it genuinely seems as if there was little or no attempt to engage with this film outside of these spurious remarks about child abuse or writing the women off uh, as quote-unquote airheads or bimbos. And I really have to wonder how much the timing with Ishtar and the venom that was circulating around that film critically at the time. Um, maybe it's just coincidental that May herself had also worked with her daughter. And I mean, feminist critic, one in particular, who I won't name because I just go feral when I think about it, but really hammered um, the character that Jeannie Berlin played in The Heartbreak Kid, saying similar things, like what kind of mother would let her daughter play a role like that? Um, so it's certainly not a case, um, you know, this was coming from all sides uh, over a decade earlier. And I do wonder that with the Ishtar storm, you know, if it was, um, and I think that there was an emphasis on this being um, Tamar's first feature film, which really undermined her experience. Uh, she began filmmaking in the 70s. I think she started off as a screenwriter. She, um, she wrote the screenplay for Lepke, the 1975 film with Tony Curtis which was directed, I think, by Menahem Golan, who is, of course, most famous for, you know... Infamous. Daddy of the Canon group. <laughs> yes. Now, this led her to be involved in the very, very famous uh, directing workshop for women at the American Film Institute when it was still under the direction of Jean Picker Furstenberg. Now, this program is still running today. It's a really, really big deal. It's the longest-running program of its type for women and non-binary filmmakers. It's run since 1974. It's had more than 350 women directors go through it. I mean, from the first year alone, the alumni from this this program include uh, Maya Angelou, Ellen Burstyn and Lily Tomlin. And it's here that Tamar developed her first short film, which really launched her career, The Haircut with John Cassavetes. Yeah, The Haircut is just an absolute delight of a short film. It was released as an extra, I believe, on a release of Cassavetes' The Killing of a Chinese Bookie because it was Ben Gazzara who appears in that film, uh, it was his daughter Elizabeth, who's a co-producer on The Haircut. 
she was close friends with Susanna Hoffs from school, and I believe it was her who was instrumental in making the connection to John Cassavetes. And, and in this film, Cassavetes plays a music studio executive who steps into a barbershop for a quick trim before an important meeting. And then he, he basically finds himself um, getting a haircut, a massage, a manicure, a pedicure. He's getting his shoes shined. Um, he's getting plied with alcohol. And it concludes with a performance from The Bangs, an earlier incarnation of The Bangles featuring Susanna Hoffs. So again, this is not the first film that mother and daughter have worked together on. So in addition to Cassavetes, the film also features uh, Nicholas Colasanto, who's probably best known for his role as coach in the long-running and wonderful sitcom Cheers. He also had a small role in, in Raging Bull. But there's another connection to the all-nighter, and that's um, Meshach Taylor, who most people might know from the long-running TV series Designing Women. Taylor has a cameo in the all-nighter as the hotel detective at the Play de Mar. James Blackford of the BFI actually did a piece on the haircut a few years ago um, to coincide with the release of Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and he writes of the film, The haircut is a beautifully crafted, happy film that benefits from an upbeat pace, sharp dialogue, and consummate comedic performance from Cassavetes. Cassavetes is unusually relaxed and understated. His physicality and charisma are the focus of the piece, and it's a joy to see his stressed-out music exec seduced by the caring treatment he receives. The haircut is simply great fun to watch, and was, if Cassavetes' performance is anything to go by, great fun to make. And that's really what struck me about this film. I kept waiting for something to go wrong, some mishap to occur to his character, and it doesn't. There's something about the approach that Hoffs takes with the haircut that's mirrored in The All-Nighter, certainly in terms of the characters. You know, her characters aren't punished or humiliated, and that's certainly the case in the context of romantic or sexual desires within The All-Nighter. You know, her characters, the characters of her films, are allowed to have fun. And as an audience, we're actually encouraged and allowed to enjoy that vicariously. And you can't help but wonder, and we'll talk about this more, but in the context of the period, this late 80s period, just in terms of the cultural sexuality, whether that's part of the critical response. I mean, we've already talked about that famous Leonard Moulton uh, review, which I'll, I'll flag here. Well, we'll come back and talk about this more shortly because I want to tap back into the haircut. But Leonard Moulton said three female airheads stumble through assorted sexual hijinks during the final senior week at college. Grotesque in the AIDS era, though it would be a stinker any time. I think there's a real anger here that it's just girls just want to have fun. Girls just weren't allowed to have fun, the, you know, after, you know, a couple of years after that Cindy Lauper song. And there's real viciousness about that. And I think that these are all places where this anger comes from. And, I mean, Tamar earned the right to do a major feature film. I mean, she, you know, the haircut played at Calm in 1983. It played at the Toronto International Film Festival. It played at Telluride. When it played at Calm, uh, Dan Ehrlich of the United Press wrote about this original screening in Calm. Just when scores of frustrated and immeasurably depressed film critics were about to fling themselves from the top of the Khan Film Festival's new palais, a breath of sunshine and happiness averted tragedy, which Josh taps in exactly to that, that spirit that you're talking about, this real kindness of heart. And I think we see that during this, um, you know, the entire relationship, I think, between Michael Onkin's character and Molly uh, in that, you know, in, when you first see this film, you know, you expect it's going to go in that direction, you know, this kind of awful rock star groupie 
dynamic. And I think there's one moment where he rolls his eyes and says something like, oh, groupies. But he's so kind to her otherwise. He's so patient and kind to her. And he can see that she's a bit embarrassed and a bit humiliated. And it would be such an easy win. And it's such a cliche to take that, to take that setup and to make it humiliating and to make it the core and to make him a villain um, and to make her a bit of a kind of, uh, to make her a victim. And the film doesn't do that. And I think it's, it's really important to actually acknowledge that it had that option, which is the pedestrian option and the obvious option. And it chose not to do that. I think that's a super important point. The women aren't punished. They're not humiliated within this film. Even later when they're arrested for solicitation, that whole sequence is played largely for, for last, not at their expense, but really at the bungling um, nature of the cops. It's more coming of age stuff than it is punishment and humiliation. I, I really want to talk about this sequence coming up at the beach where Gina begins filming the aftermath of the fiesta because the whole stylistic mode of the film changes here. She starts, we see these images of sort of the day of the dead type decorations. We hear Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor begin to play. And then Gina starts to narrate in, a, in an almost mock Vincent Price style voiceover, quoting from Stephen Crane's The Red Badge of Courage. And we hear her say, the cold passed reluctantly from the earth. And so the seniors of Pacifica entered their graduation. What had taken four years to build shattered in a night. In every direction stretched out the tormented, wasted population of Aspen, suffering from delirium, crying out in pain. And then she meets Killer lying on the beach. What I find so interesting about this sequence is the way it continues the film's fascination with the horrors of transformation. These rites of passage and the transition out of innocence that I mentioned at the beginning of the commentary. Because you'll notice in that earlier sequence when Molly is dancing in front of the, the mirror to Aretha Franklin's respect, Tamar actually cuts to a shot of Gina and pushes in on the TV screens that are playing Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein from 1948. And we see Lon Chaney Jr.'s transition or transformation to the Wolfman character. So the, the film is repeatedly associating these rituals of transformation from innocence to adulthood. You know, the dressing up, the partying, the gaining of sexual agency. They're associated with horror cinema. And the film comes back to this motif again and again. We see it when Molly is stuck on Mickey Leroy's balcony. Tamar cuts to a close-up of the full moon and we hear the, the wolf howl. And again, even later when they discover Gina's wallet inside the VHS cover for Jacques Tourneur's 1943 film, I Walked With a Zombie. You know, transformation is repeatedly associated with horror. And in The All-Nighter, the horrors of growing up are represented through popular culture, through these icons of classical horror cinema. One of the things I find really interesting about this film in relation to other teen movies of the time, not just comedies, but also horror films, especially, you know, the two big teen genres, I guess, that were really, really excelling at this moment, is the, the function of the carnival space or the party space. You know, so many of these films center around prom, whether it's, um, you know, Pretty in Pink or whether it's Carrie. You know, we have these big scenes, you know, these big formal occasions that are the festivities, they're carnival festivities um, where everything is meant to come to a head and everything usually does. This film really undermines that in that everything's sort of directed to be going around, you know, this big party and we barely see the party. Not much happens at the party that's of interest. And in fact, most of the stuff happens in a much more adult space, which is the hotel. So it's almost like it consciously rejects uh, and I guess that fits into this coming-of-age transitional moment. It rejects the idea of, of the formal 
school space or the formal educational institutions party space being where the trans- transformations happen, that they actually happen elsewhere. They happen in the real world. And again, like we mentioned at the beginning, it's Gina as Tamara Hoffs. She's the catalyst for the transition between those spaces, between those those moments of transformation, those moments of, you know, of, of horror. Oh, absolutely. I think so much of this film in a way hinges on the character of Gina. And I think John Cusack is great. And, you know, we've talked about the critical response to Susanna Hoffs' performance, but I do think it's worth flagging some of the things that were said about John Cusack. I mean, Eric Newell at the Sun Sentinel in 1987, he actually wrote what I, I think was a really interesting observation. He said, Cusack is a joy as a video craze student who wants to make a film of her last weekend with her friends. Many of the shots are seen through the eye of Cusack and her camera, and this technique, the only aspect of the film that suggests the 80s, works fairly well. A nutty mixture of Martha Ray, Lucille Ball, and Ali Sheedy's Breakfast Club freak, the rubber-faced Cusack mugs and cavorts her way to stealing the picture from the nominal stars. I think that's pretty reasonable, but, I mean, this was not a common response to anybody in this film, but... Um, Richard Harrington at the Washington Post, uh, I mean, I find it genuinely appalling what he, you know, I think he was trying to compliment her, but he wrote in 1987, quote, Cusack is especially intriguing visually, halfway between plump Botticelli beauty and boy George in his better days. I mean, that's, yeah, he's trying to say something nice, but that's pretty reductive to what's a really great performance. I think she's extraordinary in this. She is, a, as she has been for much of her career, a, a scene stealer. It's not surprising only a year later she's going to be nominated for an Academy Award for Working Girl. And a year later she's working with Michelle Pfeiffer, so sister of, of Dee Dee Pfeiffer in Married to the Mob. Her comic chops have already been firmly established before this film. She's been on SNL from 1985 to 1986 before this. And, you know, her career... Um, is defined by these scene-stealing secondary cast performances. Look at a film like Gross Point Blank, for example, one of my all-time favourite films. And, you know, she's such a small part of that, but she owns every moment on screen that she gets. And look, in, in terms of teen movies, Joan Cusack, you know, aside from SNL, she would have been really familiar to audiences at the time. You know, she pops up in 16 Candles in 1984. She pops up in class with her brother John Cusack in 1983. So she wasn't new to teen sex comedies, you know. that's This is sort of a terrain that she was already quite familiar with. And, I, yeah, I think that, you know, that, that you know, we've touched already on this idea of her as almost a surrogate for Tamar. I think that she really gets that. I think that she plays this role as the internal observer really fabulously. And just the costuming. I mean, I love, it's, it seems like such, I mean, I love the fashion in this film in general, but I do think it's really easy to under to underplay her outfit. You know, she's wearing this sort of short brown, uh, brown pantsuit, but with shorts, which is very different. You know, the other, her, her two friends dress in these sort of hyper feminine ways and she's physically dressed very, very differently. I mean, we really have to give a shout out here to uh, Isis Muzenden, who's the costume designer on this film. I just love all this 80s stuff. It just drives me crazy. This was her very first film and she would flourish. Like she's really one of the names from this film that would go on to really big things. She would work, uh, she began as an assistant on films like Purple Rose of Cairo, Crocodile Dundee. But she would go on to be the costume designer on films like Ghost in the Machine, Dante's Peak, Astronaut's Wife, American Psycho, Drag Me to Hell. Uh, and three of the Chronicles of Narnia films. She did The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and Voyage of the Dawn Treader. 
And she did all these, lots of shoulder pads, lots of off-the-shoulder satin. This is what we want. I mean, this is what I'm here for. I'm here for the neon glasses and the... I'm here for the shoulder pads, you know. I, I mean, I know that people want to listen to this for deep, riveting <laughs> commentary, but I'm here for the shoulder pads. I, I can't speak for anyone else. <laughs> So one of the treasures of films like this, I think, is these, are these tiny little characters that you can just so easily miss. We have our bellhop here, played by a guy called Todd Field, who is an actual jazz musician. And yes, if he looks familiar, he is Nick Nightingale from uh, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. He's also a super impressive filmmaker in his own right. He's probably one of the big names from this film, even though he's in a very different role professionally here. He's been nominated for three Oscars for his uh, filmmaking work for two features, uh, in the Bedroom from 2001 with uh, Sissy Spasek and Little Children in 2006 with Kate Winslet and Jennifer Connelly. Before we dive into Leonard Maltman and start discussing the impact of AIDS upon the teen movie genre and where this film fits within the, the broader spectrum of the teen movie genre, I think it's worth positioning this film in this teen movie context, specifically in maybe the teen beach movie genre, just to give a sense of the enormity of this type of film and the film production within the 1980s. You mentioned beach movies at the beginning of the commentary and just how prolific they were. To, gi to give an idea of just how many were produced in this decade, we had films like Blue Lagoon, Going All the Way, Beach House, The Beach Girls, Spring Break, Where the Boys Are 84, Surf 2, Blame It on Rio, Hard Bodies, Hot Chili, Hot Moves, Ocean Drive Weekend, Summer Rental, Fraternity Vacation, The Shore Thing, Private Resort, Hot Resort, Last Resort, one Crazy Summer, Thinkin' Big, Malibu Bikini Shop, Computer Beach Party, Surf Nazis Must Die, Senior Week, Back to the Beach, North Shore, Beach Fever, Beach Balls, Hot Splash, Satisfaction, Summer Job, Lauderdale Shag, and Weekend at Bernie's to round things off in 1989. And clearly this avalanche of teen movies that were produced within this decade of the 80s took its toll on some critics, it's fair to say, such as Richard Corliss, who wrote a piece for Time magazine back in 1985 entitled Is There Life After Teen Picks? And I quote, What's the matter with kids' movies today? There are too damn many of them, that's what, and they're all about the same damn thing. Since 1978, when National Lampoon's Animal House revived the teen picks genre, rites of passage have become kabuki rituals, popping zits, snapping towels in the locker room, dancing in the streets, ogling girls in the shower, getting crazy drunk and tearing up the strip in a borrowed Porsche and grossing out mum and dad. Sentient adults must unite to cry. Enough already. The glandular convulsions of adolescence are just not interesting or complex enough to sustain the plots of half a hundred Hollywood films each year. And yet still they breed, obeying the first law of commerce. You tailor your product to your market. More than half the US movie audience is in the 12 to 24 age group. So Hollywood keeps grinding out these smudged, cracked, funhouse mirrors of teendom. It matters not that most mega-hits cast their nets over broader demographics. Teen Picks comes close to guaranteeing a decent return on a modest financial and creative investment. They will keep coming until Chip and Wendy Q public, weary of seeing their screen doubles, lose their virginity for the zillionth time to an MTV beat. That's such a great quote because I think it taps in explicitly to the shift triggered culturally and socially with AIDS. Um, which we will talk about more in relation, obviously, to the Molten. I mean, Molten was the one who brought that into it. And I don't think that that can be underplayed in terms of the shift of the teen movie during the 1980s. There's quite a dramatic shift. And this film really got caught in that, in that transition. 
the kind of the losing your virginity or sex quest teen film is such an obvious trope and it's so it's like it's just assumed to be linked to male characters i mean losing it with tom cruise in sorry losing i added a g there losing it with tom cruise in 1983 weird science is one of the big ones revenge of the nerds and um i mean i I would go to jail if i didn't mention porkies from 1982 which indie wire call the citizen kane of teenage sex comedies I love that quote. I just have to include that in there. But this is a hugely popular trope that also includes women losing their virginity. And even though this film isn't a virginity-losing film, one of the things that I think that plays really interesting into this sexual politics of the moment is that nowhere in the film are any of these women implied to be virgins. But at the same time, their their experience also isn't heightened. Um, So, you know, so Gina's... um, Molly's on her quest... You know, she wants to meet an older man and then she realises that actually, you know, true love is closer to home with someone more her own age. But there's nothing in the film that suggests that she's losing her virginity. You know, she's an experienced woman who's about to leave college. And I do like the ambiguity there. I think that there's something really respectful and really interesting in terms of the gender politics of the film that doesn't quite fit the moment that I would actually just call ahead of its time. The stuff with the sex workers perhaps is a little different. But yeah, like the, the teen the teen girl sex quest film, um, especially about losing your virginity. I mean, this goes right back to where the boys are in 1960, at least, with Connie Francis, Dolores Hart, Paula Prentice. The big one, of course, was in 1980, Little Darlings with Kristen McNichol and Tatum O'Neill. Um, you know, the, the two girls who at summer camp make a bet about who'll lose their virginity first. Sixteen Candles, um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, these, you know, I, I think that um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is really interesting because it's, again, a, a woman director. And I do think that the the women-centred um, sex quest film, especially the Losing Your Virginity sex quest film, uh, in my personal taste, is, it's, it is, I wouldn't say that they're better, but it's, I do think that they're, they are notably handled differently from male directors. My two favourites, I think, are the category of Sarah Jacobson's Mary Jane is Not a Virgin Anymore from 1997, so much, much later. And then later in 1999, the um, Australian film Elise McCready's Strange Bits of Passion, which brings a queer aspect into it. Um, but the AIDS crisis changed all of, you know, the Sex Quest film, Losing Your Virginity film. I mean, we can't underplay the role of AIDS, the AIDS crisis in that shift. And we see that in these films. I want to come back to what you've just talked about, particularly I want to give some shout outs to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But we've just seen um, a pretty important person on screen in this in this sequence that I think um, you might do well to talk about. I'm going to to put a little footnote there. We're going to come back to the AIDS epidemic and feminism. But I guess in a way this sort of feeds into it. So cast here as quote-unquote junkie is an amazing woman called Danny Dietz, who we might blink and miss in this film, but we really need to pay close attention to her for a bunch of reasons. Now, she made her acting debut in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when she was little. But as a performer, I think she's most famous for playing Jamie in River's Edge with Keanu Reeves and Dennis Hopper. Uh, she plays the dead girl in that film, uh, the character who dies. And that led to her involvement in probably one of my favourite short documentaries in recent years, a film by Christy Guevara Flanagan in 2015 called What Happened to Her. Now, this is described in the press kit as a forensic exploration of our cultural obsession with images of the dead woman on screen, interspersing found footage from films and police procedural television shows and one actor's experience of playing the part of a corpse. The film offers a meditative critique on the trope of the dead female body. 
Now that actor, of course, was Danny Dietz, uh, and and I just can't rave about that film enough. I mean, she talks about what it's like to lie there naked, cold, and be filmed and play dead, and there are clearly gender political repercussions for that. Dietz, of course, also um, is an insanely prolific music video producer, uh, which perhaps ties us back to to what we were talking about earlier about, about music videos and MTV. She's worked with Lana Del Rey, Missy Elliott, Shania Twain, Janet Jackson, Lizzo, Halsey, and Beyonce's Lemonade. I want to come back to this issue of sexuality that we were discussing earlier, because I think in the broader context of the teen movie genre, both in terms of what preceded it and in terms of the later 90s cycle of teen films, The All-Nighter is a really interesting case study. And look, we're watching a really fascinating sequence right now in which Killer and CJ effectively drop trow to put on their wetsuits and the way the camera in this sequence fetishizes the male body in a way that's traditionally reserved for the female body in teen movies. There's, a, there's an element of sexualization and objectification in this sequence. You know, the way it's shot through close-ups, the, the use of soundtrack, you know, the funky bass solo that accompanies this, this moment, which really differentiates it from, I think, traditional representations of the male body in 80s teen films. But in terms of cultural factors that shape the, the teen movie and depictions of sexuality, really it's the AIDS epidemic that had the most profound effect. You've already mentioned Leonard Moulton and his review where he described the film's grotesque in the era of AIDS. Janet Maslin, in her review for the New York Times, puts forward a similar sentiment. She wrote that, quote, characters simply show up on one another's doorsteps carrying bottles of champagne and hop into bed with a pre-AIDS abandon. I mentioned the Thomas Doherty book, uh, Teenagers and Teen Picks, earlier. And in that, he dire refers directly to the impact of AIDS upon the teen movie genre. And he uses two examples to mark out this trajectory of the teen film. Uh, Risky Business, the 1983 Tom Cruise film, in which his character effectively sets up a bordello within the home while his parents are away. And at the other end, the 1990 John Hughes film Home Alone, starring a prepubescent Macaulay Culkin who defends his home from would-be burglars. And he writes of these two films, quote, The age differential between the two adorable house-sitters marked time with a grim historical passage. Soon after the blithe, orgiastic days of risky business, sex became just that. AIDS, the horror nascent in real-life sex, reshaped the moral landscape of the teen pick genre. Against that diagnosis, the recreational adolescent fornication celebrated and spied through peepholes in Animal House, Porky's, Private School and Revenge of the Nerds suddenly seemed less a joyous rite of passage than a jump into the fire. To eliminate sexually transmitted audience discomfort, Hollywood's teen-targeted films covered up the nudity and closed down the sex play. In a scenario set in high school, teenage sex became the extracurricular activity that dared not speak its name. And Doherty reinforces this point by pointing to the fact that by the end of the 80s, the teen-targeted films no longer featured teens so much than they did pre-teens in films like Stand By Me, Child's Play, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Addams Family, The Professional, um, films like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park and so on. And then he concludes with this paragraph. We're not chronologically downsized, the young were sexually neutered. The hormonally crazed teenagers who once cluttered the camps of the sexploitation films and animal comedies went the way of hot rods and hippies. Compared to any previous cycle of teen pics, and especially the explicit gross-outs and sexcapades of a few years earlier, 
The teen pics in the age of AIDS were noteworthy not for promiscuity and licentiousness, but chastity and temperance. Really, the all-nighter comes along at the tail end of this trajectory when those type of sexcapade romps were now no longer being deemed permissible on screen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a great article by David Green in Spin Magazine from December 1997 called Germ-Free Adolescence, Where Have All the Teen Sex Comedies Go? And he actually makes that exact point. He says that Hughes, um, who had called himself the self-crowned monarch of 80s youth cinema, stopped making teen movies around 1990 because, quote, he claimed not to understand teenagers anymore. This is a really great article, and I think it's it really taps into precisely the kind of ideas that that you're talking about here, Josh, this transition in the 80s and how that played out. And, and I think it's really useful to situate the feminism or, or what I would call the post-feminism of this film. So he writes, the early 1980s were a special time to be a teenager. The sexual revolution glowed softly in America's collective consciousness. AIDS did not yet haunt every furtive encounter and teenagers practically owned the movies. Adolescent comedies spewed forth from Hollywood in a dizzying array of genres, from low-budget exploitation vehicles like Losing It, Losing It, to well-made coming-of-age films like Class, from teen-slashing epics like Friday the 13th, to IQ-denting circle jerks like Porky's, How Dare You. These movies reflected a commonly held assumption, then an undisputed tenet of modern American maturation. Teens were wild about sex. The best of these widely popular movies, Valley Girl, Sixteen Candles, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, deftly captured the sticky-fingered, zipper-fumbling and exaggerated psychic pain of suburban teens, while almost always ending happily. But by the ending, the, the ge- even the geeks got laid. He continues, however, towards the end of the decade, sex in teen movies rapidly went limp. Maybe it was AIDS, the plummeting economy, or just George Bush's boner-killing monotone, but teenagers started growing up. Say Anything and Pump Up the Volume were surprisingly mature films about teen boys with something purportedly deep and meaningful to say, plus a newfound respect for the opposite sex. Now, I think this is all really, really super interesting in trying to locate how we approach a film like The All-Nighter in terms of its gender politics. Um, I mean, post I, I've used the word post-feminism, which really started to rise in the 80s. And I think when we think of post-feminism, we think of of Madonna. You know, she's like the queen of post-feminism. And there's a basic assumption that that post-feminism really was there to sort of shake up basic assumptions of second-wave feminism, especially in regards to women's sexuality, agency and identity. There was a degree of backlash, I think, to post-feminism, especially in the 90s, to second-wave. But it might be more healthy or might be a bit more optimistic maybe to consider it more of an evolution. I mean, this was a time when an entire new generation of young women were coming of age on the back of the achievements of of the second wave feminist movement. Um, And they had different battles to tackle. They had different problems. And I think we see the shift in those problems in films like The All-Nighter played out in a really fun, fluffy, teen movie kind of way. I mean, it's obviously far more complicated than this, but... Post-feminism, I think, was in many ways, it's a good lens through which we can understand the rise of pro-sex feminism and bitch culture, which became really big in the 90s. Um, But I think that we can see that in the late 80s. Again, Madonna's been written about huge, huge amounts in terms of that. But I do think we see that pro-sex feminism very much in this film. I mean, just the spectacle of these two men on the beach, you know, that scene that you flagged earlier with them surfing, that's usually how we see women. You know, the, the them zipping up their wetsuits and stuff. I mean, the way that, that male bodies are, are shot in this film, I think, are, are, is really fascinating. And the absence of 
breasts, the absence of female nudity. You know, we get, you know, we get skimpy outfits, but we don't get nudity in the way um, we certainly did in those early 80s films where it's the sort of the stock trade of, you know, every second or third shot is a, a shower scene or someone spying in a college window or the sex scene where the female is, you know, typically um, undressed and, and, you know, we, don't, we certainly don't see male nudity in, in the same way in those films. Susanna Hoff's actually made some interesting comments that elliptically refer to some of these post-feminist dilemmas, I think, in 1991, where she reflects on, on the all-nighter. And this was in an interview with uh, Chris Hunt for Rage magazine, in, yeah, as in 1991. And she says, But I think we still live in a sexist society in a lot of ways. If women are not dressed up nicely, they're judged harshly. And if you're dressed up nicely, all of a sudden you're getting all this weird attention. It's really hard to find people or situations to be in where you're just treated with respect and not judged on how you present yourself. I just try to feel comfortable with, with myself and hope that that's the image that comes off. And I think Hoff's comments there, even though she's referring more directly to sexism, they still reflect this post-feminist impasse for women of a certain age within the 1980s. You know, caught between those elements of second wave feminism that really focused on the negative connotations of sexualization and the objectification of women and, and women's bodies. And on the other hand, the embrace of sexual, sexuality, sexual agency, you know, individualism and empowerment through that. Ideas more associated with third wave feminism. So even though the All Night is not explicitly dealing with these ideas on a political level, I don't think it's trying to make any grand feminist statements. It still reflects the tension between these two waves of feminism. It still reflects these broader cultural and political dilemmas for femininity. Absolutely. I mean, no film is made in a vacuum, right? So even if Tamar didn't sit down and say, let's write a political film about feminism, it's a film about women and, and that reflects changes in this culture at this particular moment. Um, and look, I think a character that we haven't really talked about a lot, who I think is really, really significant when we're talking about these shifts, because I think her arc plays out these shifts, is Dee Dee Pfeiffer's Val. But, you know, she's sort of the, the sexy... She's the sexy one. I mean, there's a really creepy quote from um, Eric Newell in The Sun Sentinel from 1987. He says, Pfeiffer, the sister of Michelle, is truly sexy as the popular blonde, another cliche made bearable by Pfeiffer's electric movements and coy humour. How's that for a backhanded compliment? I mean, it's just straight out, like, misogynist, right? Like, really icky. I mean... So she's, Michelle's her older sister. There's six years between them. Um, I think Dee Dee was born in 64, Michelle in 58. Dee Dee started her same, her career, and I think this is useful to get her in, in connection because we've talked a lot about the two Hoffs women, but I do think, you know, when we talk about Dee Dee Pfeiffer, we're obviously going to be thinking about Michelle Pfeiffer too. Dee Dee started her career the same year that her sister was uh, in Into the Night, the John Landis film, and Lady Hawk. And when this film came out, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer was a massive star. This was the same time that films like Witches of Eastwick, Married to the Mob, Tequila Sunrise, Dangerous Liaisons. So there's something about Dee Dee Pfeiffer's casting in this film that I really like. I think it's a really strong performance. I think that there's an awareness that she would be recognised in this film as Michelle Pfeiffer's sister in the same way that Susanna Hoffs would be recognised as Tamar Simon Hoff's daughter. But to this, her story, you know, we haven't really talked about this abusive relationship. You know, she's the one, she's the, she's the of, of the three, she's the most explicitly cliched teen movie sexy bouncy one. You know, she's blonde and she's she wears the skimpier outfits. But she's in this really dysfunctional, abusive relationship. Um, and I think the film in large part tracks her ability to empower herself to escape that through through the support of her friends 
And it's hard not to think about that in terms of the cultural transitions that were happening um, in terms of women and their place in society at that particular moment. Just on Dee Dee Pfeiffer, it would be remiss of me not to point out that she was in Vamp, the wonderful film with uh, Grace Jones a year earlier in 1986. Oh my gosh, I forgot that. Vamp is amazing. And one of my all-time favourite moments, again, small scene that she's in, but she, she sort of steals it, is in Joel Schumacher's Falling Down in 1993, where Dee Dee Pfeiffer plays the character of Sheila, who serves Michael Douglas's character at the Whammy Burger. When she no. refuses him, she refuses him breakfast and we get that wonderful sequence, a great scene, and she sticks it to him in that moment. <laughs> I, I had no idea that that was her. I don't know how I missed that. I feel like I've, I feel like I've failed you, dear listeners. <laughs> So Pam Greer, of course, is in this film. This was not the first time that Tamar had worked with Pam Greer, uh, who's clearly like another of the really big names in this film. She'd worked with uh, Greer and Nick Cassavetes, son of Jean, uh, in Los Angeles in 1984 in a theatrical production. So this was a nice sort of reunion, I think, for, for Greer and, and, and Tamar. This, of course, is about, what, 10 years before Greer did Jackie Brown with Tarantino? I think this period is often thought of as a little bit of a black hole in her career between, you know, her big, big, big films in the 70s. But she was working. I mean, this woman works. I mean, this came out the year before she did Above the Law with Steven Seagal. And, of course, she would do other work during this era. Um, Famously, of course, she pops up in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey in 1991. There's also a delicious irony of her playing Sergeant McLeish, uh, the desk sergeant of the cop shop, having had her sort of a break in her career in prison films such as Big Dollhouse, Women in Cages, Big Bird Cage, and Black Mama, White Mama. <laughs> I like the pause there. <laughs> but look at this wonderful woman, like this empowered, you know, they're, they're out of jail. I mean, I, I love this scene. I just think, you know, the, the, the disgraceful Brad, played by Phil Brock, uh, who I know from Doll Man versus Demonic Toys from 1993. Maybe I'm alone on that front. Um, but he's a great bastard. Like he really, I mean, he's just the classic 80s jerk. Um, and I love that he is an older man. You know, there's a generational thing here. Like the age difference may not be that much, but uh, in terms of lifestyle and, um, yeah, like he's significantly implied to be, you know, more mature than her and that she, she wants to have a more mature life and she's realised that that's not for her. Yeah. There's something I wanted to come back to, and that is in relation to the impact of AIDS upon the film industry, and particularly the the teen genre. And that is, I think, one of the secondary consequences of this shift in the, the teen movie sort of being moved out. And also at the same time, you have this shift from Hollywood progressively getting rid of the mid to low budget films and investing heavily in the, the tentpole blockbusters, is that female directors who'd been given a kind of a, a break or a chance. I mean, that sounds patronising, but, you know, you've got to remember, I think less than 4% of films were directed by women in this era. And a lot of those proportionally were in teen movies. So some of them you've already mentioned, Amy Heckling, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and National Lampoon's European Vacation. She also went on to direct Clueless and Loser, two other kind of key later teen film texts. Patricia Birch directed Grease 2, Martha Coolidge, Valley Girl, Joy of Sex and Real Genius, Susan Seidelman, Desperately Seeking Susan, Lisa Gottlieb, directed Just One of the Guys, Linda Pfefferman, Seven Minutes in Heaven, Molly Miller, Student Exchange, Lyndall Hobbs, Back to the Beach, Penny Marshall, who you mentioned just before, directed Big, 
Joan Freeman, Satisfaction, Zelda Baron Shag, and Valerie Bryman directed Going Overbooked. But what happens once the teen movie disappears is that those limited opportunities, I think, become even less so, particularly within this genre, this field as it sort of disappears. And that seems to occur or, or intersects with Hollywood shifting its business model away from those mid-budget or low-budget films. I mean, I mentioned that this, the budget for this film was $1 million. There's an interview with um, Susan Seidelman where she was asked about this um, back in 2018, because I think Edinburgh Film Festival did a, a retrospective on female-directed films in the in the 80s, and she says that Desperately Seeking Susan, which had a budget of four and a half million, probably wouldn't have got made nowadays. This is a quote from her: "Back in the 80s, the studios were still making lower-budget movies, not as low as the indies, but in that let's say five to ten million dollar range, where they could take a little bit more of a risk because the production budget isn't so high." And I think that risk-taking, which opened up opportunities for, for women directors at this time, also takes a takes a massive hit when AIDS comes along and basically kills off the genre. I mean, this is we're sort of watching that that sort of the tail end here, and certainly the genre is about to to shift certainly away um, in, in quite a profound direction from what it was at the, in the early '80s when a number of these women got their got their break. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's, um, I think this taps into a, a bigger picture about women's filmmaking more generally. There's a tendency, although it's not a hard and fast rule, where so many women who are given maybe one, two of their lucky feature film shot, if they're not flawless, immaculate, clear blockbusters, it just becomes so much harder for them than it does for male directors in the same situation. So we do find there's a real pattern. Um, and again, it's not a hard and fast rule, but so many women feature filmmakers just end up working in television. Um, Ida Lupino is a really classic example of that. Um, but even Karen Arthur, who is a 1970s, she worked in feature films in 1970s. She made a great film called The Mafu Cage with Carol Kane. She had such a horrific experience with the studio system she was just treated better in television and that's where she, that's where her career went and that's where she flourished. Um, and she would make TV movies, but she never went back to the studio system because she was just treated so abysmally. And I think that Tamara is really interesting here in that she didn't do that. She took another path. So she's kept making films. I mean, she made uh, Villa Aurora in 2019. She made Red Roses and Petrol in 2003, Pound of Flesh in 2010. All three of those are with Malcolm McDowell, uh, who she's been a longtime collaborator with. One of the things that I didn't know about her before we did this commentary is that she was a writer, voice director, producer for the animated Horrible History series, which she developed with Stephen Rea doing the voiceover. Um, so she's obviously done work in TV too, but she's really, really recognised as a kind of key figure in indie filmmaking now, to the point where she's she's featured in Lloyd Kaufman's book Produce Your Own Damn Movie the iconic Lloyd Kaufman um, and he writes a little profile and includes a brief interview with her under the heading Why Tamar Simon Hoffs Always Makes Up Three Different Budgets for the Same Film where she very briefly just walks through how she makes low budget films and I think to be celebrated and profiled in a book by somebody like Lloyd Kaufman she's, she doesn't make the kind of films that Kaufman's famous for but in that indie filmmaking you know, and I mean true indie filmmaking. I don't mean like Weinstein distributed filmmaking. She says snorting with disgust. I mean real grassroots indie filmmaking. Man, I mean Tamar Simon Hoffs. She's earned her stripes. I mean, and she's she's still doing it. Like yeah, I mean, two thousand and nineteen was her last film. That really speaks to the reality of the current situation, which I think is, while the industry is changing, it really hasn't changed a great deal. 
And look, this is something that Martha Coolidge uh, spoke about earlier this year in relation to her 1983 film Valley Girl, the extraordinary Valley Girl, in a piece for the New York Times penned by Ashley Spencer. Um, if people haven't seen Valley Girl, hunt it down. It was Nicolas Cage's first major role, and it was released only eight months after Amy Heckling's hugely successful Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which we've, we've mentioned a few times now. Um, but as Coolidge points out in this interview, despite the success of both Fast Times and of Valley Girl, it still didn't open gates or opportunities for female directors like her, like Heckling, or she also makes reference to Claudia Wilde, who directed Girlfriends and It's My Turn at the um, late 70s, early 80s. And she says of this quote, there was one chance for me, one chance for Claudia, one chance for Amy. The studios couldn't wrap their minds around a woman taking charge. It was cheaper and easier to get the girl than the guy, but it stayed pretty unwelcoming for a long time. In fact, it still is in many ways. And one thing that I wasn't aware of until this year was that Coolidge was only paid $5,000 for directing Valley Girl. I mean, the film itself had a comparably small budget of $350,000, but it ended up grossing over $17 million, which is an extraordinary return, if you think about it. The other thing that I wanted to throw in, which I had no idea about, was that Coolidge had to agree to a set number of naked breast shots in order to get the gig. But as she points out in this interview, the producers never specified the length of those shots, which is, she remarks, not smart of them. And as a result, you have these four blink and you'll miss it shots of naked breasts within Valley Girl, which is a wonderful example of counter exploitation. We are up to this famous sex scene that I know that we both want to vent spleen about quite vocally. I um, I mean, we, you know, you quoted Pat Graham before at the Chicago Reader, uh, you know, the sadian implications of this vanity misfire. The only real issue is a pornographic one. How far will a mum push the parental violation? This is insanity. That is insane writing. When you read those words next to this scene, uh, there's a book called Pretty in Pink, The Golden Age of Teenage Movies by John Jonathan Bernstein. He calls this the queasy mother directs daughter big love scene. It's like, are we watching the same film? I, I just, I'm genuinely, I mean, there's a great quote from Tamar to uh, Jim Farber in the New York Daily, where she says, people said to me after seeing the all-nighter, how can you direct your daughter in a sex scene? I never thought about it like that. It's one of the nicest scenes in the movie. I think if you have a creative life with your children, it's better. This is so coy to me. I mean, look at that sheet, you know, the way that this film is actually shot, it's so coy and so sweet. I mean, to talk about, you know, Sadian implications and pornography, it's like, are we watching the same film? Yeah, I feel that sentiment about much of the critical response to this film. It just doesn't gel with what we see on screen, which is so odd because these are mostly well-established critics for the better part of the, the decade of the 80s. They would have seen numerous other teen films in their tenure as, as film critics as a point of comparison. So I suspect there's a, a significant degree of not just gender bias going on, but also genre bias at play. And that's really encapsulated by the Kathy Mayo piece from Sojourner that I referred to earlier. And I want to quote this because I think it sums up some of the, the issues regarding women directing genre films that we've, we've touched on throughout this commentary. And I quote, when a woman does show up as an auteur of a film, it is usually a piece of teen audience junk. Amy Heckling directed National Lampoon's European Vacation, Martha Coolidge directed National Lampoon's Joy of Sex, 
Even worse, Amy Jones, with the collusion of screenwriter Rita Mae Brown, made The Slumber Party Massacre. Why do women do it? Maybe they really like these films. Maybe they feel some kinship with a frustrated adolescent. After all, women know how difficult it is to gain your independence in a world that refuses to respect you like a real adult. That could be the reason, but somehow I doubt it. More likely this is another of those sick jokes the boys in Hollywood like to play. So girly, you want to make a movie? Here's just the property for you. Surf bunny chainsaw murderer in outer space. You don't want to make a movie like that? And I thought you wanted to be a director. Once in a while, women directors take such dreck and manage to subvert it into something worth watching, but not often enough. More often they are subverted by the material, making something that glorifies violence and or substance abuse, objectifies women and trivializes human relations as much as any man-made movie. I find the fact that The All-Nighter is the first mother-daughter film I've ever seen very depressing. Avoid it at all costs. Well, first, I mean, first of all, that kind of attitude um, was really prevalent. Not, not absolutely, but that, that's an attitude that was really prevalent um, in the 80s, especially in uh, feminist film criticism. Um, the idea that women could not make, you cannot make, a com you cannot make a commercially viable major studio picture that is feminist, full stop. If you want to make a feminist film, it has to be a low-budget, purely independent film. Um, that's made explicit by a number of critics. Um, but what is so interesting there is that it, clearly this person hasn't seen Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid from 1972. So again, which feminist critics, at the time at least, predominantly hammered. But it's like you haven't seen those films. It doesn't mean that they don't exist. It's like rule one, you know, rule one for film critics is don't assume you've seen everything. And to base an entire critical argument on a gap in your own knowledge professionally that's really i mean aside from the fact that i have fundamental issues with the arguments being made it's also professionally really poor form look we're wrapping up the film here and i i think it's nice that you know we're bookending it we're returning to tamar you know to, to gina's camera and to tamar's camera you know we have this nice book ending um which i think ties into a lot of what we're talking about and we haven't i'm i'm hesitant to use the female gaze because i think it's a bit of a reductive term but i do think that this film is coming from a woman's perspective in complete contrast to that quote that you've just mentioned. You feel it throughout the entire film. I mean, and we see it here, literally. We are literally looking through the eyes of a woman filmmaker, um, which is, the, you know, in terms of the film's own story world, which is Gina. We're looking at Gina's footage. Um, and the way that that ties to Tamar as, as the, the director of the film, I think is really beautiful. And I do think that this film is a really important and grossly underestimated stepping stone between this you know this earlier idea of feminism and moving towards post-feminism in in the kind of pop cultural landscape in the 90s i think this is a genuinely enjoyable film on a number of levels you know boo boo to you kathy mayo and co <laughs> i do think it's important to point out you know we're kind of um pooping on on a lot of the male critics but i do think a, a lot of women film critics not got just not this film wrong but also a lot of women directed films wrong i think that it was a period where and look maybe that's not you know maybe it's harsh of me to dismiss them professionally but maybe it's to indicate that we've had a really big shift in the way that we think about women and authorship and cinema um you know over the many many years since the kinds of films that we're talking about were made i think that we're a lot more elastic now we give women a lot more freedom to be filmmakers and to be artists than to be women filmmakers and women artists 
Which is, of course, the goal. Like, I dream of doing a commentary about a woman-directed film and not having to mention this stuff. But we can't. We're not there yet. So with that in mind, let's give the final word to Tamar Simon Hoffs, who reflected back in 1987, quote, I've always loved beach party movies because they're optimistic and ask nothing more of the viewer than the price of admission and just hanging out. And that's pretty much the mood of the all-nighter. It's a light, easy film about a moment in time when friendship really counts. And really, what else is there to say? Josh, thank you for joining me to talk about this amazing film. It's been my pleasure. And it's dedicated to Val and to Molly and to Killer and to CJ.